I'm Tony Epstein, and this is the Magical Mystery Tour. Join us as we dive into the heart of things, exploring new ideas and new ways of seeing and being in this wondrous, crazy world we share together. This is a journey into sound. Brought to you in living color on WTDR. It's happening. I can feel it. How would you explain it? It's beautiful. God, it's God. I say God. How do you like that? Why, it's preposterous. Thank you very much. Information in the form of energy streams in, streams in simultaneously through all of our sensory systems in the form of energy. He's a creative artist and the author of numerous books, including The Madness of George W. Bush, Dispelling Watiko, The Quantum Revolution, and his new book that we'll be talking about today is Undreaming Watiko, Breaking the Spell of the Nightmare Mind Virus. And we'll be talking about the mass insanity of our world through the lens of Watiko, which is a Native American term for the madness they observed in people who kind of literally went mad. And we'll also be talking about how the perspective of quantum physics plays into this and also how the antidote to uh, Watiko or the Watiko mind virus can be found within Watiko itself. Paul Levy, welcome to the Magical Mystery Tour. I'm so happy to be here with you. So thank you so much for the invitation. I've actually been wanting to interview you and, and talk with you for, for many years now, since I first read Dispelling Watiko, probably eight or nine years ago, and just loved that lens through which to see and, and understand the insanity that's been going on in our world. Yeah, well, I appreciate that because it's a it's an incredible sort of way when you 
take on board inside of your mind the whole idea of what Tico that there's a mind virus and what I mean people can hear the idea of a mind virus and it sounds kind of crazy but um you know what it really deeply means is that the source and the solution of the collective madness that's playing out all over our world is to be found within the psyche and you know what I'm trying to do in my work in bringing Watiko is trying to bring in this Native American idea, and it's not just Native American. I mean, they coined the the word Watiko, but it's in every indigenous culture or spiritual tradition. You know, from time immemorial, they they're pointing at Watiko, what the natives call Watiko, but in just their own way. And, you know, for example, some people might be familiar with the Carlos Castaneda books and Carlos's teacher calls, he doesn't have the name Watiko. He has different names for it, the predator or a lot of different names, but he says, this is the topic of topics. And it is because if we don't come to terms with this mind virus, then, you know, it's, it's like it's function it's programmed to just destroy us. And it's the source of the greatest evil. But like you just mentioned in the intro is that encoded in the mind virus, it's actually helping us to evolve. It's helping us to wake up. But if we don't see that, if we don't recognize what it's showing us, then it'll just kill us. And that's what's playing out in the world. And so this is, I mean, you know, this is the the diagnosis and the prognosis of what's playing out in our world. And I'm not attached at all to the name Watiko. It just helps to have a name and particularly a name that's, you know, sort of the proper name or the right name. Just like in fairy tales, when you find the name for a demon, it takes away the demon's power and it empowers the person who's found the name. Because when you have the name, you actually can see it. And the thing about Watiko, it operates through the unconscious and through the part of us that has blind spots. And it works through the projective tendencies of the mind such that we entrance ourselves via our own kind of mind's ability to invoke our experience. So my whole work is trying to really shed light on how this mind virus operates, not only collectively in the world, because it's at the bottom, it's informing you know, all of the world events, but also how it plays out in an individual person's life and within our mind. And like iterations of a fractal, this Watiko mind virus, it iterates itself on all different scales, both individually in our minds, relationally, and collectively, you know, in the greater body politic. And it's the source of the greatest evil in our world. And it's also potentially helping us to wake up. So that's that's what my work is really about. It's so interesting that our world not only is in the throes of incredible insanity, but we're we're getting closer and closer to this precipice from which we either have to evolve, make a kind of quantum leap in our relational understanding with the world and ourselves, or quite literally perish. And this notion of Watiko being this kind of nightmare mind virus and also an entity that can help reveal itself to us in a way that can that can help us make that that kind of quantum leap is utterly fascinating. Yeah, and that's why, you know, in my work I describe Watiko as a quantum phenomena. And what I mean by quantum phenomena, just like 
in physics when they would really try to understand what is the you know what is the nature of light and they realized well you know it depends how you observe it sometimes it'll manifest as a particle sometimes as a wave and it's a function of you know how we set up the experiment the questions we ask how we interpret the data the point is is that there's a superposition of states it both is a wave and or a particle which are completely mutually exclusive opposites and it's both in potential, and it depends how it's dreamed up, how it's observed. The same thing with Watiko. It's the source of the greatest evil, and encoded, hidden within the mind virus is its own vaccine, is its own medicine. But not only does it heal the evil part, but it potentially actually helps us to evolve and awaken. And, you know, like I've been saying, that all depends if we have the recognition of what it's showing us. It's as if the Watiko epidemic, so think about it, what Watiko is, it's a, it's a collective psychosis and it's a psychic epidemic. And what I'm pointing at is that, yeah, it's this revelatory phenomena. It's this revelation. But instead of like having a revelation where like God is revealing him or herself by descending from the heavens through light, it's like, no, the revelation is from the underworld, is coming through the darkness you know, and we're not accustomed to that. And because I point out that it's one way of thinking about it is that light doesn't just reveal the darkness, that light is revealed through the darkness. And this is a very sort of, how to say it, like this primordial insight, like in Kabbalah and alchemy and Gnosticism, in every spiritual tradition, they'll talk about that the light emerges out of a descent into the darkness and out of making the darkness conscious. And in the collected works, Jung was trying to point this out again and again. He has that famous quote where he says something like, you know, we become enlightened not by imagining figures of light, but by making the darkness conscious. And that's, in essence, what I'm trying to do. Because if we don't make it conscious, then the darkness has power over us, and we unwittingly become an instrument for it to act itself out, you know, just in our own lives and in our relationships. And when 8 billion people are doing that, you get the carnage you see in the world today. Yeah, the, the quantum aspect of it and how it's the way we perceive that determines the way Watiko manifests in the world and in ourselves. And there's that old saying how the greatest trick that the devil plays on us is to convince us that it doesn't exist. And yet, at the same time, in the Christian tradition, there is a school that talks about Lucifer as being God's most important teacher of humanity. And to me, it seems as though most people think of evil, as another term for Watiko, as, as just a fantasy, a television or religious fantasy, and aren't interested in understanding it and even considering that it's an aspect of our own unconsciousness and seem to be totally content to sleepwalk their lives through our modern consensus reality. So I would love for you to talk about what seems to be a connection between that consensus reality and Watiko. Yeah, for sure. And, you know, the consensus reality, I mean, it's really like this agreed upon spell yeah, you see, the thing is, like going back to what you said, that the greatest trick of the devil is to convince us that he doesn't exist. 
And the second greatest trick of the devil is to convince us that he does exist. You know, I mean, that's the paradox, because to just extend that as a way to enter into answering your question. So if people hear about this Watiko mind virus and get all afraid, no, no, no. Watiko doesn't even exist. It has no objective existence whatsoever. There's nothing to be afraid of. And not only that, it feeds off of fear. That's its superfood. But if we think Watiko doesn't exist, oh, then it'll kill us. You see, that's the paradox. And that's pointing at the incredible untapped power that all of us have in our minds, in our imagination, in our very being. So the idea of people who just, oh, that's just a fantasy, Watiko, let me ignore it. It's like if there's this cholera epidemic in the next town, and if somebody says, oh, it's not real, I'll just ignore it, well, they'll get killed, you know? And so this is this is this psychic virus. It operates in the psyche and through the psyche. And what you were saying about, you know, the devil, like in, in answer to Job, Jung, which is his greatest work, Jung talks about that Satan, he calls Satan the godfather of humanity as a spiritual being. So the idea is, is that this evil figure actually is helping to wake us up. And, you know, going back to Jung, he says, yeah, it's as if God put a special purpose in evil that it is most important for us to understand. And so, you know, the whole consensus reality thing, it, it's unbelievable because, you know, I'm in America, but I think this is true all over the world, but definitely it's true in America, is the brainwashing of the majority of the population in the U.S. is incredible. You know, the propaganda, in a way, the psyops, not only that's getting, you know, perpetrated through the mainstream media, that's funded by the powers that be, that are like at the bottom of creating this perpetual state of war. But the real psyops is in our mind. We actually entrance ourselves. You see, we each have this unbelievable, enormous creative power. And yet, to the extent we're not conscious of it, one could think of in terms of that there's this mind virus that plugs into our own creative power. And to the extent we're unconscious of it, it turns it against us in a way that's killing us. And then, you know, when that gets writ large on the world stage, you know, when so many people are just not in touch with their creative agency, then you see, you know, the nightmare, because I call it a nightmare mind virus, because it creates a living nightmare, like we see today. But the thing which is interesting about nightmares is that they're actually potentially like teaching us something. But if we don't get the message of the nightmare, then what happens? It reoccurs and gets more and more amplified until we finally get the message. So I'm pointing out that one of the things Watiko is showing us is that it's showing us what I call that this is a dream. This is a collective dream. It's what I refer to as the dreamlike nature of reality. So we're all like co-dreaming this dream into materialization moment by moment, but the majority of us are unconscious of that. So then, of course, we're then fated to dream it up unconsciously in a way that's killing us. So the idea of the consensus reality, it really is like an agreed upon spell that then gets reinforced. You know, when people are under the same spell, they continually reinforce that limited way of viewing things on each other, which becomes an infinitely self-generating feedback loop. And any reflection that they're under a spell, just they experience as a threat and the person holding up the mirror gets demonized. And, you know, what I'm describing, that's how a collective psychosis works. And that's what's happening in our world today.
Yeah. So for the benefit of people who who struggle with that notion that we are continually creating this and self-generating this illusory or dreamlike nature of reality, could you explain how that works? And yeah. also how not only are we dreaming up this world around us, but we're dreaming each other up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, totally. So I'll give you, I mean, there's there's a number of ways into that, but I, I love that question. So one way to understand what I'm pointing at is to invoke our imagination. So imagine you're in a night dream, right? And and what is a night dream? But it's your own inner process it just projected out as the dream. So it's a reflection of your inner process. That's what a dream is. And so, but if you're holding a viewpoint in that night dream, right, whatever that viewpoint is, that night dream, which is nothing other than a reflection of your viewpoint, has no choice but to instantaneously reflect back your viewpoint, because it is nothing other than your viewpoint, just in projected form. So say if I'm holding a viewpoint in a dream, and then the dream will give me all the evidence confirming the seeming objective truth of my viewpoint, well, all of a sudden now I have evidence confirming that my viewpoint is true. So I become more fixed in my viewpoint. And the more fixed in my viewpoint I become, the more the dream, which is just reflecting my viewpoint, offers me more and more confirmation proving the rightness of my viewpoint, which gets me more fixed in my viewpoint ad infinitum. It's a self-reinforcing feedback loop in which I've literally hypnotized myself by the creative genius of my own mind, because now I'm convinced what I'm seeing is objectively true. Well, if I'm actually convinced that the world outside of me, this dreamscape is objectively true, well, concurrent with that, I've dreamed myself up to be a subject, to be an ego that's in relation to this objective universe. Because those two, the notion of an objective universe and the experience of being a subjective self that's separate from that objective universe, they reciprocally co-arise and in a mutual way condition and reinforce each other, okay? And so that's an example of how we, our own creative sort of this genius for calling forth our experience of ourselves and our experience of the world, to the extent we're not awake to it, then we actually entrance ourselves and hypnotize ourselves and brainwash ourselves. So that's one example. Now, the other thing you were saying about, yeah, we like dream each other up. Yeah, think about each of us as we all have multiplicity of selves. And, you know, so say if you and I are hanging out, I will like out of all of your multiplicity of selves, you know, dream you up in a particular version. Say, I know this part of you that's really loving and enlightened and beautiful. That's the part I'll dream up. Or if I see you as a really unconscious, shadowy person, well, then I'll dream up. I'll invoke, I'll conjure up out of all of the multiplicity of yourselves, I'll conjure up that shadowy part. And then the more I see you in that way, it's not like I'm causing you to manifest in that shadowy way. But if I see you in that way, it's making it more probable that you will then step into that and subtly you'll manifest a shadow aspect. And as soon as you do that, that confirms to me, oh, that is who you are the shadowy person. So then I get even more entrenched in seeing you that way. And then as that process unfolds over time, then you're going to embody a particular shadow character in my process that I would be convinced 
that, oh, you really are that. That is who you are. That's objectively true. And that's what I mean that then I'm dreaming. Then I've actually like dreamed up an unconscious shadow part of me that you are the carrier of. And if, if I don't recognize that I'm dreaming, you know, then I'm just going to think that is who you are and you're separate and that's objectively true compared to if I have that realization of, you know, the dreamlike nature, then I would recognize, oh, I'm just looking in a mirror and what I'm seeing in you is my own reflection of my own shadow. That's different. Yeah, it's amazing. I mean, that's the tremendous creative power of our mind. And that seems to be Watiko's job, by hook or by crook, to awaken that understanding in us, to, to initiate us into the incredible power and also the consequences involved in that dynamic, whether we, we choose to become conscious of it or if we just lax into unconsciousness and the consequences of that, which you've already described, are catastrophic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's as if what Tico, that, you know, its purpose is to awaken us to our divine inheritance, that if we're asleep to, we're not making use of. So it literally, in a way, forces us to resist it and to connect with our power. But if we don't do that, you know, if we don't receive its gifts, well, then it'll kill us, you see. And this isn't theory. I mean, even though it sounds like, oh, this is an interesting idea or just my theory. No, this is, I mean, even in the Bible, all throughout the Bible, they talk about this mind blindness and the Gnostics talk about this mysterious mind blindness and oh, people's eyes are open, but they do not see or their hearts are closed. So the mind blindness, because Watiko is a form of blindness, you know, and it's a form of blindness that actually thinks it's sighted. And not only that, it thinks it's more sighted than other people. And, you know, this mind blindness is connected to having a closed heart. And, you know, in the apocryphal texts, which way back when were considered the most sacred of the teachings, there they talk about Watiko. They don't call it Watiko, they call it the counterfeiting spirit, because that's what Watiko is. But it got edited out of the Bible. And I point out because Watiko was on the editorial board. You see, because when you see Watiko, which is like what my whole life's work is about, is trying to flood light on Watiko, you know, its power is taken away. Then it's like kryptonite to Superman has no power whatsoever over us and we become empowered. So this counterfeiting spirit, if I can just describe that for a moment, because it's such a, a succinct way of really getting a handle on Watiko, is that, you know, like it puts us on. And putting us on has a double meaning, putting us on like a suit of clothes, but putting us on means to fool us. So it impersonates us, but it impersonates us like it presents us with a version of ourselves of, oh, I'm so wounded and traumatized or, oh, I'm so great and, you know, I'm the incarnation of Christ or whatever. It could be both inflation or just a really limited, you know, being, oh, I'm a victim of abuse and limited and traumatized and unconscious. But if we're not awake, in that moment, and we will then take the bait and get hooked and identify with its limited version of who we are, then it has us. Then Watiko can manipulate us. Then we become its puppet. And think about what I'm describing. So in a sense, you see, the thing about Watiko, it can't steal our soul. It has no power in that way, but it can trick us into giving our soul away. And then what happens is then by doing that, we then identify with who we're not. And then we've disconnected from our creative agency because Watiko has no creativity 
at all. It's a master impersonator, but it has no creativity, but it plugs into our own unconscious creativity and turns it against us. So if you think about what I'm describing, first we give ourselves away, then we identify with who we're not, then we disconnect from our creative agency. That's what Tico, and that's a recipe for madness. And right there, that's a really, I feel, the essential description. And all that feeds into how Watiko works. And that's an essential description of its covert operations of the psyops that it moment by moment performs within our mind. But the implication of that is that the best protection against Watiko is to be in touch with who we are, with our nature, you know. And and the very interesting thing is our nature, you know, that's a cliche. A lot of people, oh yeah, just, you know, connect with your true self, with your Buddha nature, your Christ nature. But what is our nature? And I point out our nature by its very nature itself is creative. So the more we actually connect with our nature, the more we embody and express ourselves creatively. And the more we embody and express ourselves creatively, the more we know our nature in a positive feedback loop that literally creates light upon light. And that's really the solution to connect with our nature, which is to like be an instrument for the creative spirit. So for any of us to be creative, that is the solution. That is the medicine for Watiko. Yeah, that in itself is such a deep thing to enter into because of how disconnected most of humanity is from its own sense of itself. And going back to what you said about Watiko as being this counterfeiter, it's like a master hijacker and counterfeiter. And through us, after it convinces us to believe in a counterfeit sense of ourselves, it then creates through us a counterfeit reality around us so that everything becomes false. And I'd love for you to talk about, you know, what it is in our culture and the age that we're living in that makes us so particularly vulnerable to the effects and the elusiveness of Watiko. Yeah, and that's a beautiful question. Thank you. Yeah, it's really interesting. It's like we, we have a susceptibility to like, you know, to just other people's ideas of what's true, you know, and that's an expression that we're not fully in touch with our own agency. Like we ourselves are the ones who are interpreting the ink blot of the waking dream, that we ourselves are the arbiters of what's true for us. And I see it in myself. You know, if I think somebody's smart and well-intentioned and they'll have a particular idea of what's going on, I see that propensity in me to, oh, well, I'll outsource my own authority and I'll believe what they say is true instead of doing my own, you know, sort of experiment and my own study and research on the topic. And so from one point of view, that openness to just like taking on other people's version of what's true which is what so many people do when they read, whether it's the mainstream media or even the alternative media. You know, that could be just as much propaganda as anything. But the idea is it's like it's an expression that they're not in touch with their own authority. They've outsourced their own authority. And I'm continually contemplating that because then when you assume a fixed viewpoint, oh, this is the way things are because I heard so-and-so say it or I heard a podcast or I read a book, you know, whatever – then you become fixed in a viewpoint and then you typically surround yourself in an echo chamber of people who also see things in a certain way 
And anybody who sees another point of view is deemed as a threat. So one of the things that I'm bringing out that is medicine for that is, you know, to develop what I call omniperspectival consciousness. And omniperspectival consciousness is really contemplating a situation from as many different perspectives as you can imagine, but particularly from the perspective of people who see it differently. Because when you do that, it increases your empathy, and then you might begin to see, oh, wow, the other side is seeing something that I'm not seeing, and they might even be seeing my blind spot. And now I'm understanding I'm seeing more of their blind spot. But all of a sudden, just from from working, like if you see it as a dream, it's like you're integrating and you're embracing these counter viewpoints, you know, and that's the solution to the incredible polarization that exists in the world today, because what Tico feeds off of that polarization, you know, the thing about what Tico, it's related to, you know, demons and Satan and the devil and all that. And it's a diabolical energy. And etymologically, the word diabolic, it literally means to create separation, you know, between parts that are unified. And so think about the incredible, like, polarization in our world today, you could imagine that what Tico behind the scenes is just feasting on that sense of polarization and separation and misunderstanding and conflict. That's the superfood for what Tico. So like even in, in physics, it was pointed out that, oh yeah, actually the Nobel Prize winner, Richard Feynman, actually brought up the idea that, oh yeah, there's a disease in physics. And he was pointing out what Tico. And he was realizing it has to do with we were just taking other scientists' words for it. And one of the biggest mistakes, and this is might be a good intro to quantum physics, was before quantum physics came on the scene, you know, a century ago, that the typical point of view of the physicists was that this world existed objectively, separate from us. And we were just the passive observers who were observing it. And that was this particular perspective that got transmitted over the generations that was just assumed to be true. And Feynman was pointing out, yeah, the solution for this disease of just assuming stuff to be true that's been passed on from previous, you know, sort of the ancestors is to actually be an empiricist and to do the experiment yourself. And in essence, that's what quantum physicists did. They realized, oh, there is no such thing as an objective universe that the act of observing the universe actually influences the universe observed, which is pointing out the incredible creative agency and power of our act of observation, that our perception is a major factor in the equation of the universe. That isn't just, you know, a passive factor, but it's a, it's an incredibly important factor in the, the moment by moment creation of the universe. And of course, what I'm describing in quantum physics, they were realizing the dreamlike nature because quantum physics was actually, without even knowing it, they had discovered that we're having a collective dream, but that's not what the typical physicists were like trained in. So they're still not even fully grokking that, oh my God, we've fallen into the dreamlike nature. And, you know, I can say a whole lot more about that, but in discovering that quantum physics is discovering the medicine for Watiko, because Watiko, you actually become entranced by your mind's own creative powers such that you become fixed in a viewpoint and think what you're saying is objective. And then you draw the evidence like I was describing. And then like a cocoon, you can become suffocated in that viewpoint. And when 8 billion people 
are in their own viewpoint or when millions of them are in agreement you know because of propaganda thinking something is true that's not they're unwittingly minions and instruments and agents for the mind virus to play itself out so i'm trying just to shed light from as many angles because in quantum physics that the physicists the founding fathers were saying it's like we've discovered this never seen before creature and we have it the quantum and we have it in this animal house with all these windows all around and we're peeking in through all the windows and each view is a different view, something really different. We've never seen this creature before. And we're trying to put together all of the images we're seeing as we're looking around through the windows to try to discover what is the nature of this creature. And in a sense, that's what I'm trying to do with Watiko or with the quantum nature of the universe by trying to sort of, you know, articulate it, to map it from all different angles. It's kind of like, you know, if there's this sort of like, imagine you have this round globe hanging from the ceiling and there's light shining on the globe and it puts you know the two dimensional flat circle of the globe on the wall and we're looking at that wall and seeing that round circle the shadow of the globe and thinking that that's the reality where the reality is no that's just being cast into a lower dimension in a two-dimensional world where the higher dimension the globe that's what's casting the shadow so it's like what I'm trying to do and what the physicists were trying to do. See, they, they never have saw an atom. Nobody has ever had a direct experience of the atom. But by the atom's effects, they actually were able to infer, oh, there's this thing called atoms. It's the same thing in psychology with an archetype. No one's ever seen an archetype. But by the archetype's effects, and the archetype is invisible and formless, we are actually able to infer that there's this thing called an archetype. And so in that way, atoms and archetypes are very similar. And the same thing I'm pointing out with the quantum or with Watiko, yeah, no one's ever seen it. Watiko is formless. I've had people who say, oh, no, I've discovered Watiko and this is what it looks like. No, you've then fallen under its spell because Watiko is formless and it can take on any form. And it's none of the forms in particular, but it can inform itself in, in an infinite variety of manifestations. The point is to trace back, just like you trace back the effects of an atom and infer an atom or the effects of an archetype and infer an archetype, you trace back the effects of Watiko in our world, in our relationships, in our mind, and you actually are able to infer, oh, there is something that's not material that actually interfaces with our psyche that's at the bottom and informing and giving shape to what's happening in our world. So for people who are still seduced by the materialist reductionist perspective of the universe and of the world, what does it take to recognize the need to look at things in, in a new way and also to acknowledge how this operates within us? Because some scientists are still stubbornly holding on to this notion that quantum physics only operates on the subatomic level and that it doesn't apply to our world. And I think much of humanity is also thinking of their own lives in the same way. So what does it take to recognize the need to go inside and do the kind of psycho-spiritual work that it takes to deal with Watiko and yeah, and the Yeah, that's a really, a really good question. And it's a hard question. You know, I mean, I think about my own life. I'll, I'll use myself as an example. You know, I was going through life and was, you know, happy, healthy, you know, I was very much in mainstream consensus reality. And then there was this overwhelming over-the-top trauma 
you know, and I don't need to go into the story of it. And it created just enormous, enormous suffering. And it basically stopped me from living the life that I had been living. And so that really forced me into myself. The only thing I found that in any way was helping to alleviate the trauma, however, little bit by little bit, was self-inquiry and assuming the position of the witness. And, you know, I quickly figured out that as long as I was in my mind, my cognitive conceptualizing mind, that was, you know, like a closed circle that was just recreating the suffering again and again. It wasn't helping at all. And so, you know, it makes me think of, you know, the archetype of the shaman or the wounded healer, where oftentimes, or when somebody like an AA, when they hit bottom, the idea of hitting bottom, of feeling our brokenness, of being wounded and traumatized, And, you know, that can be catastrophic in that it can really, you know, the person could get stuck there and it could really destroy their life. Or if they are able to receive that moment of trauma or abuse or wounding as an event from like a higher dimensional realm, you could say from this numinous realm that's initiatory, it can actually propel them to go inward. So I think Just as I'm thinking about your question on the fly, the sense of if people are going about their life and everything is working and they're assuming the scientific materialist reductionist point of view and they're getting all the benefit of that and there's no problem, yeah, there's not going to be an incentive for them to inquire within. And actually, there's a real counter incentive because to inquire within can really shake us up. It can be shocking. It can be really traumatizing. Like in the quantum physicists, they were talking about when they first discovered the quantum and they realized they would describe it in terms of, oh, yeah, it was like the rug was pulled out from under them and there was no place to stand. And it was incredibly traumatizing. And I made a name for this in my quantum physics book. I call it quantum physics induced trauma, that when you have the gnosis of what quantum physics is is revealing to us, it's traumatic. But it's a particular type of trauma that over the time, as you integrate it, it helps you to evolve and expand your consciousness. But, you know, most people, the trauma aspect of actually seeing through the illusion that they're used to, you know, interpreting things through is so traumatizing and painful and shocking and shattering that, like I'm saying, there's a counter incentive to go there. So then they just, you know, really defend any sort of reflection that might make them see a more expanded point of view in a way they just defend it with their life and they tend to demonize the messenger the one holding up the mirror and but you know it's funny in answering your question i think it has to do with when all of a sudden something in our life is not working and we have that suffering or that trauma or that wound you know and that really you know can propel us into this deeper process I mean, that's what happened for me 40 plus years ago. I didn't know anything about shamanism or the wounded healer archetype. But then more and more, I began to recognize as I would study over the years that, oh my God, I'm like, there's a deeper, in a way, archetypal pattern. Because the shaman is, in my imagination, equivalent to the wounded healer. And that that archetype was activated in me. And I was like, that was the deeper pattern that was informing my process. And I point out that that deeper pattern of the shaman or the wounded healer, that's the deeper archetype that's activated in our world. And if you think about that, you know, you'd have to be insane to choose to be a shaman. No one would ever do that. 
you know, because the suffering is so overwhelming, it's always something that you get called by the spirits or by like, you know, the higher dimension of the universe. And the idea is, is when we get called to ascent, to say, okay, I'm going to follow this. Because if the would-be shaman or wounded healer, if they don't ascent, that's when they get really sick and can even die. And think about what a shaman does. They descend into the underworld of the unconscious, where they confront the demons and evil and death and insanity. And But they don't get caught in that. They were able to come through that and bearing the gift that they then come back to the community. And, and there's one other thing about the shaman, because that is the archetype that all of us are dealing with. A shaman is the storyteller. It's the creative artist. Okay. And so a shaman is somebody who's really empathic. So they feel and take on the illness of the person they're working with or the community or the tribe or, you know, the species. So they will literally take on the illness. And by taking on, you know, that has a double meaning of taking it within themselves, but also to have it out with, to like be in the arena with the illness and, you know, really trying to come to terms with it. So the shaman, when they take on the illness, they literally fall ill, but then they experience the psychic illness from the inside. But because they're connected so strongly with the self, with the wholeness of who they are, over time, they're able to reconnect to their wholeness, to their center, which has to do with love and compassion. And they're able to metabolize that illness into their wholeness. And by them doing that, that becomes an offering and helps the client or the community. All of a sudden now, the shaman has cleared like a pathway in the wilderness of the collective unconscious you know, such that it can be accessed by other people because we're not separate. And the idea is when any of us, we've been made sick, we're all shamans in training by the sickness in the field, in the in the non-local field, in the world. And it's a way of instead of seeing as being a pathology, no, we're like, that's the shaman part of us that we've empathically taken on the sickness and we've fallen sick, all of us. But are we going to stay sick and be stuck in that? and identify with being sick, then we're going to need a shaman or a healer. Or is that occasion going to propel us into deepen our realization? And by doing that, then we're like, you know, in a way spreading light or healing throughout the non-local field that becomes available for all of us. And that in a way is, is all of our process, what I'm describing as shamans in training. Yeah, that could be a difficult pill to swallow. Because you're essentially saying that we're all being called to do that kind of work of the shaman. Oh, completely. And but it's a way more difficult pill to swallow to say no. If you if you're getting called, whatever that means, you know, and if you say no, you know, that's when the shaman, you know, can go crazy, you know, can become really sick and all that. But as soon as you assent to the calling, because the calling is coming from a deeper place all of a sudden you've gotten in alignment with the sponsor of the calling, which is, you know, the higher dimension, spirit, whatever you call it, God. And then all of a sudden you get supported. You know, that's, you know, a very simple way because the idea of the wounded healer, which is equivalent to the shaman. And keep in mind, I didn't know any of this until like this happened to me 40 plus years ago. And over the course of time, I more and more began to understand, oh, well, I've gotten enlisted into a deeper mythic archetypal transpersonal process, almost like this is the divine incarnation process that all of us are being cast to be instruments for the incarnation 
of some sort of higher dimension of our being. And instead of this, you know, this godlike figure incarnating through like one person, like it did 2000 years ago, it's incarnating through all of us, through the collective unconscious. But instead of 2000 years ago, all of the darkness was kept out of the chosen vehicle, you know, of Christ, and the darkness was embodied in Satan. So the opposites were totally polarized when you see it symbolically as a dream. Now, God wants to incarnate through creaturely man, to quote Jung, who is tainted with a shadow. And so what Jung is pointing out in the essence of his work is that the closer the bond that God is having with humanity, the closer an encounter with evil. And that's like contextualizing what's happening in our world. But like he's saying that, oh, Satan is the godfather of humanity as a spiritual being, that in that encounter, you know, and, and we need to deal with that psychologically, evil is as real as we are. If we just think, oh, evil is not real, blah, 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 well, it'll kill us. There's something in us that's being shown to us through this encounter with the darkness. And that's the idea of the wounded healer. The wounded healer, you know, the real myth is that there's an incurable wound. And I think about myself, I was unbelievably like wounded through what happened in my life 40 plus years ago. And for decades, I was committed to healing this wound and getting rid of this wound. And then at a certain point, I began to realize, what if it never goes away? And I feel it every moment. But all of a sudden now, like my whole relationship to it has changed in that I carry the wound in such a way that it becomes a portal for me to access my gifts and for me to access my creativity and for me to access my love and compassion. And yeah, I would love it to go away, but the archetype of the wounded healer is basically saying, well, there is, you know, a type of a wound that is incurable, but it's actually the highest blessing. And, you know, and it makes me think in the representations of Christ when he's resurrected, if you look at the paintings, he has a wound in his side you know, and that's very, very symbolic, you know, or another way of symbolizing this is in the Bible, there's like Jacob, when he was having it out and having this wrestling with the dark angel of God, you know, and this darker figure, and Jacob just knew he had to make it through to dawn. And once he did, he asked the angel of God for a blessing. And what did the angel do? He touched his hip, and his hip got wounded. And then the angel changed his name to Israel, he who has wrestled with God. The idea is, is that an encounter with the higher self, which is more powerful than we are, because when you ask, well, why was Jacob wrestling with the angel? How come he chose to do that? Well, if he didn't wrestle with the angel, he would have been killed. That's why. But the point is, is that an encounter with the self, and the self is our totality, which has a light and a dark aspect, is a wounding experience. So that's the wound in his hip. But then by making it through that wounding experience, our nature gets transformed. That's why his name was transformed to symbolize that. And that myth of Jacob wrestling with the angel or Christ in his resurrected body having the wound in his rainbow body, that's actually expressing our dynamic, what each one of us is going through. So this makes me think of you know how separation is really the primal wound that we all suffer. And are all these just metaphors for facing that and embracing it and recognizing that? 
Yeah, well, that's that's really great you say that because the thing about this mind virus, the Watiko mind virus, when I before I came across the name Watiko, I was writing about it. I wrote about it in the menace of George W. Bush, but I didn't have the name Watiko, and I called it malignant egophrenia or ME disease, me disease. And I realized, oh, it's a misidentification of who we think we are. Because in essence, what Watiko is, it's identifying with the separate self. And that's what I was trying to point out in quantum physics. As soon as you think the world exists objectively, you then dream up a separate self, you know, a subject to be in relation to an object. But if there's no quantum physics saying, oh, there's no objective world, well, then what happened to the subject? Because the subject needs an object to be in relationship to to be a subject. If there's no object, what happened to the subject? What happened to that separate self? So that identification with the separate self, that is the essence of Watiko. Okay. And that is the essence of every teaching and tradition that's informed by wisdom, spiritually speaking, is trying to like shed light on the imagination of the separate self that we don't exist as a separate self. But on the contrary, when you really go into the nature of your experience, you begin to realize, oh, we are interdependent and interconnected. We don't exist in an isolated alien way, but we only exist in relationship to other beings and the whole rest of the universe. But each of these other beings don't exist intrinsically from their own side independently. They only exist in relation to other beings. And there is no like objective, independent, intrinsically existing reference point anywhere. In Buddhism, that's called emptiness. And it's not like you discover emptiness as a thing because emptiness itself is empty of inherent existence. That's why in Buddhism, that's like equated to, you know, the, the realization of emptiness, that that's our nature, that we don't exist in the way we've been imagining we do. In the collective works, Jung was pointing at this. He says the greatest danger that faces humanity is to identify with a fictitious identity. And that fictitious identity, that's Watiko, you know? And so, yes, because once we identify with a separate self, as soon as there is separate self, then we invest all of our life force for the rest of our lives, defending and protecting the separate self that doesn't even exist. And all of our creative energy that could be going towards expressing ourselves creatively or in a loving, compassionate way, then like a black hole gets rechanneled into protecting this illusion that doesn't even exist. In physics, David Bohm calls this an illusion generating illusion. In other words, the primary illusion thinking there is a separate self, just continually, chronically generates a whole host of other illusions. But if the initial illusion of that separate self isn't seen through, we're just going to be like continually conjuring up an infinitely self-reinforcing, generating, you know, web of illusion upon illusion. And in Buddhism, that's be, you know, in samsara. And that's the actual malady that is afflicting our species. And that malady is to be found within the psyche. That's what I mean about a mind virus. That's what Tico in a nutshell, because as soon as we identify with a separate self, then we've created a sense of others. Oh, I'm in here. I'm in a skin encapsulated ego. Then there's others. And then what happens as soon as we have others, then there's fear. And fear, like I've been saying, is the superfood for Watiko. And then it be, just becomes a self-generating feedback loop that we are colluding in, that we are actually participating in. There's no one else doing that. We are doing that. So, yeah, the idea of a separate self, you're totally right on. And so to break the cycle of all that, we have to willingly face and embrace 
that separate self that we've created as being a part of us, as being coming from inside of us. And that when we do that, that other part of us, that unconscious dark part of us is transmuted into something else through like the metabolizing and integrating of the false self into our own self actually helps us to realize the deeper truth of our true self. Yeah, well, you know, the whole separate self, what you discover is that it doesn't exist in the way you've been imagining it does, that it's just an idea in your mind, you know, that we always, our nature is to be connected always at every moment. And, you know, it might be helpful to understand just from the psychological point of view. So, you know, here we are and, you know, in our wholeness and then something happens, you know, we all are in trauma. You know, I've been like saying for decades that, oh my God, you know, I'm in total trauma and I more and more realized, yeah, our species is in trauma. I mean, just think about what we just went through with the whole pandemic and we were all, that was like a collective trauma that was 24 seven for, you know, a few years. But even before then, you know, we, we're just a species in trauma. And what happens in trauma? Well, an overwhelming experience happens that we can't integrate and symbolize in a normal way. So we split. A part of us disassociates. And if that split part, if we don't integrate it, then it develops in a way a seeming autonomy or independent life or will of its own. And, you know, and then it can manifest as sort of adversarial to our will you know, or to ourselves. And in psychology, this is called an autonomous complex. And interestingly, indigenous people call this a demon. But ultimately, when you trace it back, it's just our own wholeness. It's part of our own psyche. And that, you know, due to trauma, we've just split off from. And that is what Hiko, that autonomous psyche, that demon, that's a way of describing what Hiko, and that's why in all the, the greatest spiritual traditions, they'll talk about that. Ultimately, that demon is none other than your own self. It doesn't have any objective, independent existence, even though we subjectively experience it as if it's an entity, a separate entity that's separate and other than ourselves. And just to associate to this, you know, in his work, what Jung was after in the therapy he created was to connect people with their inner guide, their inner, he called it the daimon. The daimon means the inner guide or, you know, the guiding spirit. And the idea of this daimon, because he experienced it as, you know, in his autobiography, Jung talks about, he had this experience of Philemon. People have probably heard of Philemon, and it was like Jung had this experience that inside of his psyche was a being who was clearly part of himself but knew more stuff than Jung did and was other than himself and had a seeming autonomy or seemingly independent life that was teaching Jung stuff. And it blew Jung's mind. You know, it helped him to discover what Jung felt was the greatest discovery of the entire 20th century in the realm of psychology. He called it the reality of the psyche, that there are parts of the psyche that just, you know, have their own ontological existence and in a way create themselves. And so he was having this relationship with Philemon, and that was an example of connecting with his daimon. And the daimon is the source of, it connects us with our genius, it's our, you know, angel, it's our muse, it connects us with our vocation, with our calling, connects us with our inner voice, all of that. But if we don't connect consciously with that daimon and we contract against it, 
then that daimon consolates negatively and becomes a demon. And what Jung was pointing out is that encoded in that daimon, a daimonic energy, by definition, think about it like a higher dimensional archetypal energy that can possess an actual person or a group of people or a species. And so if we're not in connection with that daimon, we literally become possessed by it. Think about Watiko. If you're not in a relationship to Watiko, which isn't just a personal energy, it's an impersonal daimonic energy, it can take you over and possess you and you then unwittingly become an instrument through which Watiko incarnates itself into the world and acts itself out through you. But what Jung was pointing out was that encoded in this daimon, which if you don't relate to it consciously becomes a demon, encoded within it is our creative genius. Okay? And so that's why it's so important to connect with our inner guidance, because that leads us, you know, with our intuition to our celestial counterpart, our angel, our muse, whatever you call it. Whenever you have something that has like so many names, it's pointing at the miracle quality uh, of this phenomena that it will actually connect you with your creative genius. And that is, like I keep on saying, that is the solution for the Watiko psychic epidemic. And that starts with the individual. You just can't make a law like trying to legislate that. No, any one individual connecting with their genius, and that involves coming to terms with their darkness, with their shadow, both personally, with our personal shadow, and collectively, archetypally, that, you know, we all are not separate. What Jung was saying, it's the Black collective shadow of humanity. We all partake of that. And you really have to own that. And paradoxically, by owning our shadow, it connects you even more deeply with your light, with, with your goodness. talking with Paul Levy. He's the author of this book we've been talking about, Undreaming Watiko, Breaking the Spell of the Nightmare Mind Virus. And this is the Magical Mystery Tour on WGDR Plainfield, WGDH Hardwick, Central Vermont Community Radio. Creativity is such a prevalent theme throughout both of your Watiko books, and it's occurring to me that creativity is also instrumental in the way we interpret things around us as well as within us. And in the book you wrote, the whole of creation is a cosmic text, a living oracle speaking to us symbolically in every moment, thirsting for us to continually interpret its deeper meaning. Realizing that all things speak to us inspires us to develop a method of interpretation 
that reflects back our realization that the sacred word or the divine becomes materialized in everything, in every moment. Yeah, that's funny when I hear my words, you know, spoken back to me. But the idea is this is a dream. And being a dream, what is the language of dreaming? It's symbols. It speaks symbolically. And, you know, in Buddhism, one of the words for enlightenment, you know, is Mahamudra. It actually translates as the great attitude or as the great symbol. The idea being this universe is an oracle, that being like a dream, it's speaking symbolically. And that's why in his work, Jung was, and not just Jung, so was Jesus. I talk about this in my new book, that they both talk about the importance of developing symbolic awareness, you know, because this universe is continually speaking, but it's speaking symbolically as if it's a dream. And we just need to learn to become fluent. So Jung was spending his whole life, he openly says in one of his letters, I've been spending my whole life, you know, fighting for the reactivation of symbolic awareness. And that's exactly what he's meaning. But the thing about symbols, it's important to understand what they are because they're different than a sign. A sign that has a, this literal meaning, one way, do not enter. That's an example of a sign. But a symbol is something, it's like a psychic energy transformer. It's like an expression of a, of a deeper reality. And when we get into alignment with the symbol and we have a resonance with it, it becomes a portal bringing us back to that deeper reality that it's symbolizing with. And symbols typically combine the opposites, you know. And an example, like Jung was pointing out, and he taught me the way to understand the Christ phenomena, at least in part, in a very you know helpful way, is to see it symbolically, which in my new book, that's exactly what Christ was saying. He was teaching his disciples to see everything that was coming through him symbolically. But of course, if somebody had dared to say this a century or two ago, they would have been burned at the stake because, you know, the typical fundamentalist Christian, they interpret things literally. Where isn't it interesting what Christ himself was trying to get across? No, no, no. You should see what I'm going through symbolically because think what a symbol is, is a union of opposites. Well, think about who was the figure of Jesus. He embodied completely being a human being and completely being God, which are complete opposites in one being. He was a symbol of something. And when you see it that way, and you have the realization, oh yeah, our species would literally dreamed up the symbol of Christ. And isn't it interesting, right at the moment that Christ appeared on the stage, what happened? There was his dark counterpoint. Here was Satan. That's not an accident. Here are the opposites in totally polarized form appearing together because they were expressing the incredible polarization in the collective unconscious of humanity at that time. And But the idea is when you see what came through Christ symbolically, and you know, and then think about it, he's on the cross. And you know, it was it was Jung who helped me understand this, that that can be so symbolic. You know, I mean, we all are Christ on the cross, and it's symbolic of holding the tension of the opposites. And those opposites are intrinsic to the deity. And what Jung is saying is that, yeah, if we prematurely decide, oh, let me identify with this opposite and repress that one, then we develop a dis-ease in the core of our being. But if we have the integrity and the courage and the strength and the love to hold that tension of opposites, to hold that creative tension, 
out of that, something emerges that the ego couldn't have made for itself. What Jung calls it is the reconciling symbol or the transcendent function, whose function is transcendence. The idea being by holding that tension of the opposites consciously, all of a sudden, something, you know, some form of like this grace comes through, you know, gets consolated. And whether that's the creative expression of whatever art we're making or something in our being gets unlocked or transformed. But in a way, like here's Christ on the cross, symbolically reflecting back. And it's even more than that. I mean, in my new book, I talk a lot about here's Christ who's literally showing us. Here's the pathology in the human psyche, guys. Hey, take a look. Who's murdering? If I'm the higher self, who's murdering me? It's humanity. It's like actually symbolically revealing to us a whole other way of looking at the Christ event is that it's like all of a sudden there's a dawning awareness that's symbolically getting expressed in the waking dream that we ourselves are the murderers of Christ, that we are doing that not only to each other, but to ourselves, you know? And that's a profound revelation because when you realize that, you discover, wait a second, no one else is doing that. We're colluding with our own victimization. We are unwitting instruments of the deepest evil to the extent that we're not actually reflecting upon our nature. Wow. And there's no one else doing that to us. We are doing that, which means we can stop doing that. Okay. And just one final thought. People ask me, you know, how come we're doing what we're doing in the world? Like we're destroying ourselves. We're, you know, undeniably enacting collective suicide, you know, and they ask me, well, why are we doing that? And I can answer that. It's very obvious. We're doing that. We are killing ourselves. We are enacting collective suicide because we don't know how not to do it, okay? So we're doing it as the way to potentially teach us how to not kill ourselves, which we clearly don't know, or we wouldn't be killing ourselves. The point is, encoded in the pathology, in the killing of ourselves, is the realization, is the revelation. But if we don't recognize that, then we'll be fated to continually commit suicide collectively, but encoded in our unconscious, like acting that out, just like in trauma. What is the pathology of trauma? It's the repetition compulsion. That is the symptom. That is the pathology. Oh yeah, you're recreating the very trauma that you're trying to heal from in an infinitely self-generating feedback loop. That is the pathology of trauma. Well, guess what? Encoded in that is the solution. We're actually trying to consciously experience something that we weren't able to experience at the moment of trauma. But if we don't actually tap in and unlock and consciously experience what we weren't able to experience in the moment of trauma, well, then we're just fated to recreate our trauma. And, you know, just one final thing, because this is such a profound idea. There's one Russian philosopher, Nicholas Berdiev, he points out that if we are waiting passively for the coming of the Messiah, for the second coming, then... God will only show us his crucified face in the form of Christ on the cross. But if we connect with our creative nature, us expressing ourselves creatively, it all of a sudden creates like a pathway for the Messiah to incarnate through us. That in other words, us connecting with our creative nature and embodying that creative spirit is our very role that helps the second coming to incarnate in our world through us. And so it's just, you know, kind of creating context for the really profound and, you know, sort of spiritual aspect 
of being creative. It's not just like a hobby. And when I say being creative, it's not just painting or drawing. That's a very flatland version. It has to do with every moment, like you were saying, the way we interpret our experience moment by moment, the meaning we place on our experience moment by moment is actually creating our experience. We are creative beings. That's our nature. And when we tap into our creative nature, we then are offering ourselves as an instrument for the deity to incarnate through us. That's so beautifully said. But you talked about being able to contain the tremendous tension and the trauma of our experience in order to come to a place of wholeness. What is that container? What is the nature of that container? How do we go about creating and becoming a functional container that can hold all of that tension? That's another great question. In alchemy, and throughout my work, I talk a lot about alchemy. The two most important things, one is finding what's called the prima materia, the chaos, the rejected stuff, the sh**. That's the stuff out of which you make the gold. You know, the primal chaos is the prima materia. And, you know, it's our wound, our trauma, you know, where our suffering lies. That is the prima materia. The other important thing is the hermetic vessel, the container. That's an alchemical term. And the idea is like, I'll just give you an example, a personal example. So we all have to develop that internalized container, you know, in which and through which we're able to transmute and to metabolize the prima materia, you know, all the darker, you know, the rejected, the despised parts of ourselves that we want to just compartmentalize or project out. You know, the container is this sacred sort of vessel, you know, through which that stuff gets transmuted. And here's an example, like say, for example, if I'm sitting in meditation and I feel my wound come up in a particular moment in time, and so if I experience that wound as being real and solid and objective and separate, then now I have evidence to confirm that I'm a wounded person. And the more I identify myself as a wounded person, the more likely in the next moment, I'm going to dream up my woundedness to confirm my identity as being wounded. That's a self-reinforcing feedback loop that I'm creating, that I'm participating in, in which I'm conjuring myself up in a way that's wounded and traumatized and, you know, in a limited way. And there's no one else doing that but myself. But if I have a container in my own mind, that same experience can come up at being wounded. And instead of having it, you know, serve as evidence confirming how wounded I am, I could be like, oh, well, I could actually experience this consciously because, you know, I've never experienced my wound separate from my awareness. And instead of just thinking of it as like, you know, because typically when we experience our wound, we contract against it. So there's the separation. Oh, it's objective. It's separate from me. It's happening to me. I'm a victim. Instead of that, this is just the form my awareness is taking in this moment. This is just an ephemeral manifestation. This is just a display of my awareness. Then I'm not clinging to it. I'm not solidifying it. I'm not grasping it. I'm not making it real, you know. I don't have to do anything to it. I can just allow it to self-liberate, that it's just the momentary display of my awareness, and it actually even more brings me in touch to my nature. So here's the very same manifestation, the wound, and depending on how I observe it and perceive it and interpret it, I create a completely different experience, and that's based on if I have the container to really be present and experience the nature of what I'm experiencing in that moment as the wound arises, which is that it's not separate from my own mind. 
And then all of a sudden, oh, once I recognize that, it's just like having lucidity in a dream, then I don't have to like think it's real or solid or react to it or try to do anything to it. I can just allow it to just liberate by itself, you know? And that's an example, this one of many examples I can give of creating a container. And of course, another example of a container is when you have friendships or relationships, you know, intimate relationships or just with your community or with your boss or with your relatives or friends, the idea like stuff comes up. Yeah, shadow stuff gets played out. And is there a container to unfold that, you know, for both people to like reflect upon that? Because when that shadow stuff comes up in a relationship, it's potential for incredible misunderstanding and separation and hurt and confusion, and it can break apart the relationship. But also in that shadow coming up in the relationship, there's a real possibility it can actually even deepen the intimacy and help people to awaken even more. And at the beginning of our conversation, you mentioned having an omni kind of directional perspective of things. Omni-perspectival, right. Yeah, right. Yeah. Being able to see things from many different directions at the same time and being able to do that can completely change the way we see everything and especially our wounds, the wounds that we previously have considered to be our downfall, perhaps. They can become literally metabolized into tremendous wisdom and compassion and understanding that can actually help other people and even contribute to the, the non-local field of, of humanity, the wisdom of humanity itself. Yeah, that's absolutely right. And that might be a really good place to stop because encoded in the deeper the wound, the deeper the trauma, the more potential for awakening, for wisdom. And it's the same energy. Instead of being channeled to just recreate our trauma and our wound and our stuckness, you know, there's a way of tapping into, of alchemically transmuting that same energy and instead of it having inform or being re-traumatized it all of a sudden can inform the most sublime creativity and love and compassion absolutely yeah and going back to the carlos castaneda books don juan tells carlos the more difficult the path is the more fruit is born you know on the other side yeah and just like you know one of my teachers said last time he was here he was going yeah the great enlightened beings from tibet didn't become enlightened because everything was going great. No, they became enlightened because there were all these obstacles. But the way they they held the obstacles was as catalysts for deepening their realization. Mm -hmm. Well, Paul, this has been such a pleasure to talk with you. Yeah, I really appreciate it too. It's super fun for me. So just really can't thank you enough. Well, be well and thank you so much. For sure. Really, thank you so much. Bye-bye. Okay, bye-bye. Paul Levy is a creative artist and the author of numerous books, including The Madness of George W. Bush, Dispelling Watiko, The Quantum Revolution, and his new book is Undreaming Watiko, Breaking the Spell of the Nightmare Mind Virus.
keys to the round, found an infusionary. Foot map, linguistic scanter. Helpless in the entity. See the cage bird at the bosom of the angry shortfall. One finds a fistful. All engaging. All engaging. Perfections in that non perfection end. I see queen, I see king, I see king, I see queen. Well, none of you know my kingdom mania. Last chance to retract it. Last chance to retract it. Why would you hide from yourself?
wondering why these two notes of different pitch swing back and forth the same amount across the rest frequency. We have work to do. I'm sorry. David thought it was the happiest. All right. Enough. Tell me more. Stop joking. Yes. Now, what's that mean? Goodbye. Rumors. I'm so proud. Slå tillbaka. What? Mr. Broccoli. Tycker du om mig? Ja, jättemycket. Just gonna sit there? From the limiter, the now cleaned up wave is fed into the discriminator. Come on. Noise, that's the problem. Sounds good to me. There's still time. Time. What the hell does that mean? Again with beautiful song. so much for listening. If you missed any of the show or would like to hear it again, you can find this and all Magical Mystery Tour shows at soundcloud.com WGDR. And until next time, take good care of yourselves and each other. 